Now on to the show. So today in our <laughs> It's the greatest show on earth, Matt. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest study as I am by why people still ask me for a fax number. Who still uses fax machines in this day and age? The FDA. What do they use them for? They, when, when we were at Novartis, they would send all their communications to us by fax. Why? Using courier font of all things. Literally courier <laughs> font typed on an actual typewriter. Why? I, I, Why is I don't anybody know. In I this, don't know. I have seen, I saw somebody who had a, an email signature and it said phone and listed the phone number and it said fax and it said something like, why do you care? Or, you know, <laughs> something like that, which I thought was, was great. But really, the yeah. FBA still uses. Yeah, it was fascinating. There's still there's still the occasional times I have to I have to fax something. Every, I mean, on the rare occasion that I see somebody using the fax machine, I walk up to them and say, "What's that thing? <laughs> what do you fax? Yeah. What what? So for my health reimbursement claims, you can either use snail mail or fax. Mm. You cannot scan an email. Nope. Something wrong there. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, That's I am Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health, and I am here with. Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hey, Matt. And we are fortunate once again to have in the studio, as Dante is away, we are fortunate to have Jen Ryder here with us. Hi, guys. From the Department of Epidemiology here at the BU School of Public Health. We are here in the Boston University Godly studio. Uh, so, guys, I uh, did something new, which is that I actually went to the Population Health Exchange website. Have you guys have you guys gone to it? Yes. Some really cool stuff on there. So this is Boston University School of Public Health Resource Hub for Lifelong Learning. Uh, and they've got a whole section with uh, short videos and advice and tips, which is called Practically Speaking, which I found really interesting. A lot of interesting stuff you could find on there. Things like uh, how to use social media for public health, how to do better and more effective science communications. So I would check it out. That's at www.pophealthex.org. Uh, and a reminder to all our listeners, if you go ahead and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or Stitcher or uh, where else do, where else do you get your podcast? Vimeo. Vimeo. There are so many. That's I, a thing? I, I, I was Googling myself the other day, as I'm, I'm wont to do. And um, <laughs> How often do you Google yourself? Is that like a... Not every day. But... but <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Often. How often do you find anything new? Uh, this time I found a lot new because I, I Googled um, Free Associations podcast. Yeah. And there there are like six or seven platforms that host all our, and including one in Danish. Way to go. In Danish? Or, or Dutch. Maybe it was Dutch. I, Nick, truthfully, is this true? I couldn't tell if it was Danish or Dutch. <laughs> Nick apparently speaks fluent Danish and translates the, the uh, podcast for us. So that's, I, I was that's pretty impressed. awesome. I was impressed. All how, right. Yeah. And so, uh, so when like we we say what is our like our readership our listenership statistics is that based on that's based on Google right but what about no, all these parallel, so how how where do these numbers come from okay there's a program that Nick enters the there's this code that Nick enters into the the link I'm making this up and it uh, then goes to a service before it goes to the downloader and it identifies that you have downloaded the podcast hmm. so oh. how many subscribers are you up to now forty million. Wow. Wow. That, that is not as many as I thought. Uh, apparently Nick is saying it's more like 400. Uh, I don't know. 
Plus uh, I don't know. Damage. So we don't know. So what we know is, is we, get, we get roughly, after about a month, we get about six to 700 downloads per episode. Oh, That's roughly where wow. we are. That's great. Yeah. We should get more than that. We should. Everyone who's listening, please tell all your friends your and friends. neighbors. Uh, I find kids really enjoy this podcast. Yeah. Definitely trips to Maine. Trips to Maine <laughs> are definitely... Trips to Cleveland, too. Depending on where you're starting from, you might have a lot of episodes you can listen to. I have no idea at this point even where in the script I'm supposed to be. So while I do that, Jen, can you tell us uh, how often you Google yourself and what you're looking for? Well... We can maybe talk about this later, but when I Google myself, I often find very interesting oh, things. Oh, boy. So, yeah, there's some history there. There's a reason for that, given what it is that uh, Jen studies. You want to... What do you study? Um, so, in general, I just study prostate cancer. I mean, that's not that unusual, right? But um, I do have one paper on ejaculation frequency and prostate cancer risk um, that generated some very interesting... Headlines, I would say. And even more interesting is Stockhart. Can you cut, can you cut Chris' know. microphone before he says anything here? Let's just uh, let's just walk away from that one. Sorry, Chris. What what was that? Was there a, a direct or an inverse relationship? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there was a fairly strong inverse dose-response relationship with number of ejaculations per month and risk of prostate cancer. And this was a large study, 30,000 guys, more than 4,000, almost 4,000 prostate cancer cases followed for 18 years. Um, so yes, the, the major finding was that ejaculation frequency in midlife positively affects long-term prostate cancer risk. That could be one of our our studies at some point. Now onto the show today in our first segment, which is our journal club segment, we are going to talk about a study on the effects of low dose aspirin and whether or not it is actually the effects are related to, uh, body weight or BMI then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to go back to something that we talked about uh, in an earlier episode, which is the placebo effect and some some new thoughts that I and, and others have on this. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some of the things that we find awe-inspiring, or I will tell you about yet another one of my many fears, if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, uh, so I wanted to uh, just say we have been getting more and more feedback and suggestions from listeners, uh, and I want to really thank them for writing in and taking the time. Keep it coming. We will take all your ideas. Uh, we can't necessarily uh, go with all of them, but we really appreciate it, and we, we will uh, send a response if we can. So now on to the first segment. So in segment one, we are going to talk about an article that looks at whether we are using the right dose of aspirin in order to prevent strokes and other negative consequences. The study was published in The Lancet with first author Peter Rothwell of the Center for Prevention of Stroke and Dementia at the University of Oxford in the UK. The study was titled The Effects of Aspirin on Risk of Vascular Events and Cancer According to Body Weight and Dose Analysis of Individual Patient Data from Randomized Trials. That is quite a mouthful of a title. So as always, uh, Chris will drop some things on the floor while I read the headlines. They are as follows. So the Mirror UK says scientists reveal the correct doses for daily aspirin takers and the results may surprise you. Forbes says an aspirin a day? Question mark. Not so fast. Medpage today says down with one size fits all approach to aspirin, researchers argue. The New York Times says an aspirin a day for heart health? It may depend on your weight. 
And Pharmacy News says, do most patients need higher dose aspirin to prevent vascular events? So you can see those headlines are pretty all over the place. Um, so let's get into the study. So Jen, can you uh, break this study down for us? Tell us what they did and why they did it or anything else you want to tell us? Sure. This was, um, a, this was a complicated one. This is a monster of a paper. So you all have talked about the phenomenon of salami slicing on prior episodes. So cutting up a paper into its smallest publishable parts. You cannot accuse these authors of that. This is salami making. But what I like about it is it's almost what seems like a naive question. Should we be giving bigger pills or bigger doses to bigger people? And you might think, surely that's been addressed for a drug as common as aspirin. But it turns out that it really hasn't been. Yeah, kind of amazing. That it, it shocked was, me. It was yes. surprising to me that this is not a an answered question. And, yeah. don't, and don't you kind of wish you had that idea? I mean, it's so I simple do, and elegant. Yeah. Because then I'd be published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Well, it's, it, isn't More it the Lancet? Lancet? Well, but, whatever. I mean, whatever. Close. Equally as good if you're listening, Lancet. <laughs> I don't want to publish anything of mine. Anyway, sorry. Sure. Just to you, Richard. So a little bit of background. So weight or body size-based dosing um, is is actually used for some other types of drugs. So Most drugs, in fact. Really? Yeah. You would say most drugs? Most drugs, yeah. Okay. Like, like if you go to pediatrics. I mean, the, the pediatricians are constantly pulling out their little calculators and dosing Tylenol by the but, mill. But for adults? Half mill. Uh, no. Less so for adults. Yeah, yes. so but they, they do, say so they do for, for peds, but not for adults. Yeah, so for thrombolytic medications, medications to dissolve blood clots, for instance, that's that tends to be weight based. Uh, for intravenous antiplatelet drugs, um, uh, there is weight based dosing, but not for oral antiplatelets like like aspirin. And that's what these authors have called it's a one size fits all approach, both out in clinical practice and in uh, the design of trials. Yeah. So aspirin really works by inhibiting platelet aggregation and does that through this COX-1 mechanism. Um, Previous studies have found that aspirin uh, reduces vascular events pretty modestly. Mm -hmm. So so it hasn't been, you know, there's some benefit, but it hasn't been um, so impressive. We know that body fatness is associated with uh, lower COX-1 inhibition with low doses of aspirin, um, likely because obese people tend to have more platelet aggregation um, and activation. But no one has really looked at whether the alternative mechanism, that meaning your lean body mass, Mm -hmm. could affect the effectiveness of of aspirin on on lots of chronic disease outcomes. Um, So that's what uh, these authors were really trying to do. So they had this hypothesis that higher doses of aspirin might be more effective in heavier people, but harmful in those with a low body weight. So what they did was they basically used uh, the anti-thrombotic trialist collaborative and other reviews to identify uh, two types of trials. First of all, primary prevention trials um, of vascular events that um, that used either daily or alternative day aspirin versus no aspirin. Primary meaning we're trying to prevent the first occurrence of of. Strokes. Exactly. Or any, any or vascular, any vascular event. Events. Exactly. Yeah. But, but first occurrence. That's right. Um, and then they also uh, looked at secondary prevention trials. So those would be trials in patients who've already had an, had an event and are higher risk um, 
to look for trials of aspirin versus control uh, of stroke specifically. And those trials had to include at least 1,000 patients. So from those trials, they obtained a ton of individual patient-level data. So they had data on age and sex and height and weight and all kinds of vascular risk factors like smoking and diabetes, uh, all major vascular events, major bleeds, cancers, and deaths that occurred during follow-up. Um, and they also attempted to collect data on sudden deaths that occurred. And then one of their um, outcomes was uh, the 20-year risk of colorectal cancer because there's quite strong evidence. I would say among all cancers, the, um, the evidence for aspirin being uh, protective for cancer risk is strongest for colorectal. So they looked at that specifically um, and colorectal cancer in that situation was assessed in post-trial follow-up. And I'll say that in those, they did some stratification by baseline variables. They had very little missing data. Things were like 99% complete. Um, they used Cox models to estimate hazard ratios. Um, and in general, um, they censored people at death or the end of trial follow-up. But they also did these secondary analyses that we can maybe talk about more, where they censored people at the time of discontinuation of uh, aspirin use. Um, and they do that to what they say, avoid confounding by withdrawal of treatment. So then they look at a ton of interactions. So that's what this paper is about, all about interactions. So they're looking at interaction terms between weight and aspirin treatment, um, both using dichotomous and continuous weight. Um, and uh, they also looked at interactions with other measures of body size. So things like height um, and then uh, other measures that required sort of a, a formula and algorithm to compute like lean body mass or body fat mass or body surface area. But the main analyses ended up looking just at body weight. And then they did even further stratification within those interactions where they were looking at age of less than 70 years or greater than equal to 70 years, uh, sex, smoking, BMI, the formulation of aspirin, whether it was enteric coded or delayed release versus standard release, and also the period of follow-up. So mm -hmm. within the first few years of follow-up after randomization or later later on. So they identified 10 different primary prevent <laughs> prevention trials. Wow. Nine of them had data on height and weight, and so were included in this study. Nice. Se yep. Seven of those were of low-dose aspirin, um, and uh, two of those were of, um, of higher doses of, of aspirin. There were also five secondary prevention of stroke trials that were um, identified, but they ended up obtaining individual patient data from the four of the largest trials because one didn't include information on height and weight. There was one trial that was low dose versus placebo, two that were higher doses versus placebo, and then one that compared two different doses. Everything's reported in kilograms. I don't know about you. I don't think about think in kilograms. I think in pounds. So the median uh, weight for people included in these in the study uh, ranged from sixty kilograms to eighty-two kilograms. So that's from um, one hundred and fifty-four to one hundred and eighty-one pounds. So sixty kilograms is about one hundred and fifty-four pounds. Mm -hmm. Two point two kilograms to a pound is that right? That's right. Yes. Um, and uh, the median weight in women was 68 kilograms or about 150 pounds. And then in men was 81 kilograms. I think that's about right around 180. 
Um, okay, so are we ready to get into the results? I yeah. am. Yeah. But there are a lot of them. There's so, so give us the, many. Give us the important ones. Okay. So when we're looking at low-dose aspirin, they found, um, first of all, that uh, there was evidence of effect modification by all the measures of body size that they looked at, but that body weight was the strongest modifier. And just to be clear, when you say effect modification, the effect of low-dose aspirin differs depending on whether or not your BMI is, say, high or low. But not BMI, actual body Sorry, weight. Sorry, body weight. But that Sorry, brings up weight. a really important point, and that's that even when they controlled for BMI, the same phenomenon was true. Within BMI. Within BMI. Different weights have different modifying effects on the effect of aspirin on vascular events. So it really seems like these are separate mechanisms. There is the lean body mass mechanism, right, that's captured more by body size, and then there's the another sort of body fatness mechanism. But what they're really looking Mm. at here is the effect of body size and lean body mass. As measured by weight. As measured by weight. But it turns out you see the same types of results even if you look at something like height or if you use a formula to try and estimate lean body mass in particular. Okay. Um, So in the primary prevention trials, they found the greatest uh, effect on cardiovascular events in participants who were in one of the lighter categories by body weight. So the 50 to 69 kilogram category. So that they had the strongest in protective effect of low dose aspirin. Mm-hmm. So they found a hazard ratio of 0.75 with, you know, pretty narrow confidence limits. That effect was even stronger when you looked at aspirin that was taken daily. So there the hazard ratio went down even to 0.68. But what they found is that there was a loss of effect in those who weighed 70 kilograms or more. And that was even more pronounced when you looked at the enteric coated or delayed release aspirin. When you say the the loss of effect, meaning there is no effect. There is no effect. No beneficial effect of low dose aspirin at the higher uh, weights. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Starting at 70 kilograms. One interesting thing, though, that they found for the low-dose aspirin that doesn't quite fit in with that trend is that among those who weighed less than um, 50 kilograms, there was no benefit on cardiovascular events, and there was actually an increased risk of all cause of death. So uh, the hazard ratio for any cause of death was 1.52, with confidence intervals ranging from 1.04 to 2.21. That's for patients with weights below 50 kilograms so that's 110 pounds so those are very light presumably something else is going on with that population that they are just sicker in general somehow to even further support that when they um when they excluded participants who had a bmi of less than 18.5 would which would indicate that you were underweight they no longer saw that Mm -hmm. sort of adverse effect of of uh, low dose aspirin so one of the interesting things about this paper is it clarifies potentially some discrepancies across different patient populations. So for instance, they found that low-dose aspirin prevented stroke in women, but not in men. But then there was actually no difference after mm-hmm. they accounted for weight. That was a right. completely a totally weight-driven finding. Yeah. Um, they found very interactions with uh, interesting interactions with low-dose uh, aspirin and smoking. So the protective effect on cardiovascular endpoints diminished in smokers. They weren't deriving as much of the benefit from low-dose aspirin, and there was actual harm in smokers who weighed 70 kilograms or more with low-dose aspirin. 
there was um, this increase in case fatality of first cardiovascular events in those who were 70 kilograms or more with low-dose aspirin that were driven primarily by myocardial infarction, um, and also an increase in fatal first uh, cardiovascular events in those who were 70 and older. And aspirin, as we know, there is a risk of bleeding Mm -hmm. associated with taking aspirin, um, and that was apparent in this in this study, but uh, even with low dose aspirin, but was lost in participants who weighed ninety kilograms or more. So mm-hmm. there was a risk of bleeding, but once you were ninety kilograms or more, there wasn't any risk with low dose aspirin. Again, totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. But I don't know that we really knew that. Right. right. I agree. We didn't know that. Yeah. But it totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Totally believe it. All this Plausible. sort of hangs like, yeah, little people. Like you would expect. A small dose is going to work in a little person, but is not going to work in a big person. And the big person is going to have fewer side effects due to bleeding for the same reason that it didn't work. Because if it's going to work, it's going to increase your bleeding risk. Yes. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's all the same thing, flip sides of the same thing. Okay. So, and I'll, the secondary prevention of stroke trial results, more or less similar. I'll sort of skip over those But then we get to the high dose aspirin. And now we'll get to the high dose. Which is where I totally like, okay, I no longer understand this paper at all. Okay, great. So give us the high dose, because that was an interesting piece of this. The protective effects of higher doses of aspirin are in cardiovascular events increased with increasing weight. So for high dose aspirin... The heavier you are, the more protective the aspirin was. So effect modification going in the opposite direction is what we saw for low-dose aspirin. Um, That was true for uh, vascular event incidents and for death and both in the primary and secondary prevention trials. In the primary prevention trials, 325 milligrams of aspirin reduced cardiovascular events in those who weighed 70 kilograms or more with a hazard ratio of 0.83. And in those who weighed 90 kilograms or more, 500 milligrams of aspirin aspirin reduced these events uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.55, as well as um, cardiovascular deaths, hazard ratio of 0.52. 0.52. So again, so it seems like the benefit you derive is dependent on receiving the dose that's appropriate for your weight. Using all the data from sort of the low dose and the high dose aspirin, they created this optimal dosing schedule mm-hmm. that was weight-based. So basically they came up with um, recommendations for weight that would produce the largest reduction in in cardiovascular endpoints. Um, so the recommendations were 75 to 100 milligrams for those who weighed 50 to 69 kilograms, mm-hmm. 300 to 325 milligrams for those who weighed 70 to 89 kilograms, and at least 500 milligrams for those who weighed at least 90 kilograms. There was this suggestion that the risk of sudden cardiac death in the primary prevention trials increased when this optimal dosing schedule was exceeded, but not when weight was below the threshold. So it seems like if you're going above this recommended um, dose for weight regimen, you you have risk of of death. Unlike the uh, low-dose aspirin, where there was a threshold at which the major bleeding excess risk um, was no longer apparent, For high-dose aspirin, the excess risk of major bleeding increased with weight. Mm -hmm. So those are the main findings just for the cardiovascular endpoints. 
All right. Let's. Do you want to digest those before I think, we talk I think we about should, cancer? I think we should take those on because I think there's there's more than enough for us to Great. to get into. So, Chris, I mean, this is a this is a complicated uh, study. This was a lot of information, um, and it mm, tells an interesting story, but it's also uh, a little puzzling in places. So, mm-hmm. what's your what's your critique of this one? Well, this one forced me to go back to my basic pharmacology. So looking at my old Goodman and Gilman's clinical pharmacology text from from med school, um, which I remember reading 25 years ago and remarking that aspirin is a really complicated drug that, you know, the way or at least the way it was understood to work was was extremely tricky and trying to sort of reconcile the results there with what we know here and what we've learned about aspirin subsequently. So the... So sort of to some, quickly summarize that, the, the antithrombotic effects of aspirin, that is to say the things that stop you from clotting, are due to inhibition of an enzyme called COX-1, cyclooxygenase 1. Um, but as the name implies, there's also a cyclooxygenase 2, which is what the drugs like Vioxx were supposed to target with the belief that the Vioxx-like drugs by attacking the cyclooxygenase 2 would not lead to an increased risk of bleeding. And um, in fact, that turned out to be true, but rather too true for their liking, mm-hmm. because it turns out that COX-2 inhibition leads to an increase in thrombotic events on an absolute scale. So that's why Vioxx was removed from the market, because it seemed to actually slightly increase your risk of heart attack. Yep. And so going back to look at aspirin's pharmacology, aspirin at low doses has a very potent effect on irreversibly inhibiting COX-1, which would make you more likely to bleed, which is what you're trying to achieve when you're trying to prevent heart attacks is to make your blood thinner. But at higher concentrations of aspirin, you start to get inhibition of COX-2 as well, which could lead to a prothrombotic effect. And so the results here that seem so counterintuitive that in small people, low-dose aspirin is effective, which seems to be a direct dose response, right? That as, as you get bigger, that small dose becomes less effective because you're just diluting it by that much more body mass. That totally makes sense to me. Yep. But the 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 high-dose aspirin, which doesn't really have an effect or seems to have a slightly harmful effect amongst the smaller people, but becomes you know neutral and eventually beneficial at the higher weight people, could be actually what we're seeing is this relative inhibition of COX-1 versus COX-2 as a function of the concentration of aspirin. So it could be that we're looking at sort of a U-shaped, a, a, a hill-shaped, a bell-shaped curve. Uh, so a, it's not a linear curve, like more aspirin equals more blood thinning, but that more aspirin at some point reverts to becoming less blood thinning and, mm-hmm. less, and, and more prothrombotic. So I, I'm, I'm totally waving my hands here. I don't know if that's what's going on, but at least the basic pharmacology said that this could be an explanation for what we're, we're seeing here. And it could all be that there's a dose-dependent effect on COX-1 versus COX-2 inhibition ratios, and at the higher doses, you're starting to get a slightly prothrombotic effect. But all of this does reinforce what Jennifer was saying, is that it, it probably means that we really should be paying very close attention to the doses of aspirin and not just saying 81 milligrams, which is the standard dose that you get at CVS for low-dose enteric-coated aspirin, that is is probably a a far too simplistic way of, of using this this complicated medication. Okay, all right. Um, so I want to I want to get into some uh, stuff that we haven't really talked about because fundamentally, this paper is about effect modification, or is yes, it? yes, I or think is it is. it. Or is it? I knew That's, you were going to ask that. This, by so the way. this is what I want to go. So when we talk about effect modification, we're essentially saying the effect quote, in quotes, uh, of the particular intervention differs within levels of some 
third variable. In this case, does the effect of aspirin as a preventive measure for uh, vascular events differ depending on the size of the person, the weight of the person? Um, and we, we need to be clear that we're talking about, in this case, relative effect measure modification, because you can have, in theory, you can have relative effect measure modification and no additive effect measure modification, and you can have the opposite actually occur. So you want to be very specific in what we're talking about. We're talking about relative. But my question is, is this really effect measure modification, or is this potentially mediation, or is this potentially just dose, dose defined as dose per kilogram? I'm not entirely sure I understand the distinction you're drawing here. That is why I'm going to turn this one over to Jen. So the the distinction being, with effect modification, we are saying the effect differs within levels of of weight. With dose, I'm saying that actually what really matters here is the, the amount of dose. The effect is the same, but it's dose per... Kilogram that what we really is what we really need to define it, mm-hmm. and we're not able to look at that because they didn't use the same dose per per you know per kilogram uh, across different groups of people, and therefore you can't you can't actually well maybe you could actually I suppose you probably well could. and that's what everyone did originally right they were just looking at the same dose across right. all individuals so, the same dose as opposed to if you change the dose to dose. You dosed everyone at the same dose per kilogram. Right. Got it. Then you could look at something different. You probably still look at this. Which, yeah. which in, in theory, they could have done in this yeah. analysis is yeah. to look at an indexed yeah. concentration by weight. Agreed. To see if there's an effect there. Yeah. That's not just dose, but is dose is is an effect modifier, right? Yep. Okay. Or is the effect somehow mediated through weight? That that you have some effect of aspirin use on vascular events that is mediated through a person's body weight and that somehow if you were to change that person's body weight, you would change the preventive effect. Uh, different ways of thinking about the same thing or are these fundamentally different or what's your what's your reaction to that question? Well, I think they're all related because in your third question, I think that that's true. I mean, I think the idea would be if I weighed 150 pounds today and I lost 20 pounds and weighed 130 pounds tomorrow, that my, the dose that would be required to be effective would also change, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I think that is true. I also think that it is a question of a dose question that you, so they could have analyzed the data in a different way where it was dose per kilogram. Can, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. I take it back. I take back what I said. Okay. Sorry, with mediation, we're saying that aspirin would affect BMI, sorry, would affect weight, which would affect vascular events, which is not the case. Yes. Okay, so sorry, I got myself confused for some reason. Throw that one out. That yeah. one I'm pretty confident is not happening. That's not going on. Okay, yeah. so we've got effect modification, effect mediation, and, and effect arbitration. <laughs> dose. Can we just a dose just response. Just walk it back there. Yeah. Just a dose, dose response, response the third one. But dose we're going to throw that one out. And so maybe they are. Maybe I'm getting at the same things. So, so but I think the reason they didn't do that, and I'm guessing here, that they didn't look at dose per kilogram or, because they wanted to also look specifically at the, the effects of BMI. And then the interpretation becomes much more complicated. Mm. So I think it's mm-hmm. easier to mm-hmm. interpret the results of a model when you're looking at the interaction between aspirin and body weight when you control for BMI than if you had a dose per kilogram measure and then you controlled for BMI. So controlling for BMI is saying regardless of body fatness, right, or obesity or whatever, you still see this body size 
effect. Good point. Right. Good point. Okay. Because yeah. because body body mass index is really a, a measure of the composition of your body. You you can be a, a fifty kilogram person with a very high BMI because you're you know two two foot tall and yep. weigh two hundred pounds. Yep. Right. Um, exactly. As opposed to a two you know an, an eight foot person who is a skinny beanpole who weighs two hundred pounds and looks like a stick. Yeah. And I think they're really the, tall because they're right. really tall. And in the paper, they I think they make a nice argument about why lean body mass would be important for the effectiveness of of aspirin because that mass correlates with the tissues where right. um, where this would actually be occurring. Right, presumably. Yeah. Presumably. So I, I, I like this study a lot, but I, I it is complicated. Um, one of the things that that just does bug me about this study, which I find from so many, is that you've heard me get on my soapbox about this before is they don't really ever present the risks of these events. So the only place you can actually really find it, there's, there's some, some limited amount of data in the paper that you could actually try to calculate it, but they don't tell you over what time is there is an appendix, which eventually gives you the Kaplan Meier curves, which shows that the risk of these events is we're in the neighborhood of four to five, uh, three to 4%. Uh, actually, I suppose I would say two to 4%, depending on, what we're looking at uh, for risks of cardiovascular, uh, all cardiovascular events or ischemic strokes um, over a period of 10 years. So it helps to put that in context when you're thinking about these protective effects on the nature of 0.75, I think there was the, the relative, the hazard ratio. Um, so I, the second thing I wonder when I think about uh, effect measure modification is, um, is it possible that what we're looking at isn't really uh, so much as really big differences in the effects as um, just differences in the baseline risk of the event. That if you are a um, person with uh, a low weight, your risk for vascular events is different from your uh, risk if you have a high weight or a high BMI. And so the absolute effects could be the same, but the relative effects would then differ because the baseline risk is different. That appears not to be what's going on here because if you do actually look at the risks, the risks actually differ very little by low and high BMI, which kind of surprised me. Does that, or sorry, low and high weight. Mm -hmm. Is that surprising? The fact that the uh, baseline risk of vascular events doesn't differ much by weight? At least in these this dichotomy of weight. Mm, I don't know if I'm surprised by that. Okay, um, I was because because there are different body ha- body types. Okay, so you know you can have again five people who are equally lean but weigh a different amount just because they're different heights. Yep. So I don't think it's it's a difficult thing to to study in terms of of cardiovascular risk, but it is a much easier thing to study in terms of the volume of distribution of an aspirin being dissolved into all the fluids of a body. All right. So last, last, last question before we move on, which is, so this is, I mean, this is a really interesting take on something that we probably thought was a, a known question and turned out it wasn't. Is this enough to change behavior, change policy, change the way that we dose people with aspirin to prevent well, I certainly events? think it's enough to change the design of trials, and maybe yeah. that could be the the first step. So I don't know if it would be enough to change clinical practice, but um, but certainly it seems like trials should be dosed based on weight, or at least that should be a component of those of the, of trials, right? I mean, one yeah. of the one of the most interesting findings here is that you know some of these trials were con- conducted exclusively among men, some some were conducted among women. You might look at the overall results of those trials and say, oh. 
the results aren't generalizable to women. It turns out it's all about body size. Not the women about, are just right. smaller. Yep. Um, so so I think that that should definitely be taken into account moving moving forward. I mean, the other thing is that, as the authors point out, I mean, most participants in this trial, so 80% of the men and 50% of the women, and I'm assuming this is probably even more true in the U.S. general population, weighed 70 kilograms right. or more. So should low-dose aspirin ever be recommended? considering if, if we such only, a small percentage of the population would ever benefit. If we were only going to make one do, one standard dose of the recommendation, it seems like we would That is not the one to make. Yeah. underdosing a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Chris, any last thoughts? Uh no, I just, you know, or aspirin is an aid is an is an ancient drug. Um and uh it's an orphan drug and I don't know uh how much appetite there is amongst pharmaceutical companies to invest a lot of money in running clinical trials on aspirin dose finding. Yeah. So maybe this would come from like the American Heart Association or for the sponsored by NIH or something like this, but this is this is not going to come from the pharmaceutical sure. companies. Sure, sure, sure. So it may be that for for quite a long time that, you know, an individual patient meta-analysis based on, you know, randomized controlled trials, this may be the best we've got. Uh, I think and you're I, right. And I suspect that this will have a, an impact on practice. Yeah. And it probably should until we have better information. This is the best we've got. Yep. Uh, okay. I'm going to leave it there. Unfortunately, we didn't get – there is a lot of other interesting data on the, the the cancer outcomes. We'll have to leave that for another time, but it's worth uh, reading this paper and, and just looking at that as well. So let's move on to our second segment, which is um, I want to get back into something that we talked about on a previous segment and hopefully get a different perspective which is the placebo effect. And Chris is looking around <laughs> as if he has no understanding that this is the topic. So no, no, I, I read, I read this but twice. Jen, this is apparently going to be a conversation that you and I have. Uh, Chris will weigh in. As, <laughs> there are notes all over my papers. I take sure exceptions are. and sure underlined are. bits. Oh, well done. They were underlined though in the, uh, in the printout. <laughs> no. those, those are okay. Look, can um, I, can I just say that the, the, the placebo effect, it, like it is a very interesting thing. Um, it's a very potent effect. Uh, I got uh, really irritated at my veterinarian, uh, some months ago when she came over to her house and noticed that the dog was limpy and gimpy and suggested that we give glucosamine to the dog. Glucosamine is, you know, has a clear placebo effect in humans, has no biological effect at all. It is just a placebo. And yet dogs are not susceptible to human placebos because they do not know that you're giving them glucosamine. <laughs> so this was like the stupidest thing I'd ever heard. Sorry if you're listening, veterinarian. And I, did it I'm work? Not, no, of course not. We, well, we didn't How give do you... the dog glucosamine. <laughs> so you're saying but... <laughs> definitively that you know for sure dogs... Animals in general are not susceptible to the placebo effect. Pepper, we are giving you a placebo. It will have no effect, but your mind-body experience will be altered by this, and your joints will feel better. Trust me. No, I mean, we. The Pepper responds to her name, and when you bang on the tin, that's, that's her communication limit. Jen, any pets? Dinner time. Yes, and it's so, uh, I mean, I can't wait to get to Amazing and Amusing because I want to talk more <laughs> oh, about yeah, our pets. Oh, yeah, you're going to be taking down a peg here, Chris. All right, placebo effects. Let's go. Let's All do right, it. so the question is this. So when we talked about them last time. I'm feeling better already. <laughs> <laughs> Strange. My this, mind and my body are just. <laughs> is a Chris Gill placebo. Uh So we talked about this previously, and Chris, you presented some data that suggested that there was some real good evidence to suggest that the placebo effect was real. I mentioned this in a tweet 
something came up about placebos, and I mentioned this. And people were very critical of the literature that Chris, that you pointed to, which compared placebos to no treatment, saying that in those studies, there is potential for serious confounding. In addition to which, the other argument, and this is the one I'm, I'm even more interested in, is the idea is that is, is much of the placebo effect really regression to the mean? And I say this, so I'm going to go back to an article that we did on depression, so we did a couple of different studies that we looked at on depression and antidepressants specifically. Uh, and in these trials, so these were trials that we actually had some concern with in which uh, they compared paroxetine to imipramine. Do you remember these? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What Remind me what paroxetine and imipramine are. Imip- um, I don't remember the brand name for imipramine. Paroxetine is pro, uh, Paxil. Paxil. I, believe, I, think, I, I think, okay. Paxil. Yep. And they have this this drug looking at uh, differences in, uh, I think, reported, it was the HAMD depression score, uh, in which all groups, all three of these groups, those who got drug A, drug B, or placebo, all three of them go from high in the beginning down, drop dramatically. The Supposedly, the one group drops a little bit more than the others. And I made the statement when we first looked at this that, what this tells me is actually there's this placebo effect and we should be taking advantage of this. We should give people a placebo first and then see if they get better. And if they don't, then we would treat them with something else and see if it works. Mm-hmm. And uh, re-looking at this now, I'm thinking, no, that's not what's going on. There is no placebo effect. This is just regression to the mean. That these are trials that are enrolling patients who are at an unusually high point in their depression because that's what made them eligible for the trial and giving them the placebo does nothing. It's not a placebo effect. They're just going back to normal. So is the placebo effect real or is it not? Jen, what's your, what's your take? So first I just want to clarify something. This is only an issue when we use self-reported outcomes, right? Probably. Primarily. Probably. Although, I mean, if these, if placebo effects are real in affecting things like pain, in affecting things like, uh, I don't know, depression, theoretically, that could have some small long-term mortality benefit. But let's say we had a perfect depression biomarker. Would we see the same thing? Maybe, I think. Maybe not. If you believe in the placebo effect. (sighs) Uh, I'm not saying I do anymore. I'm well. I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying I'm less convinced. Yeah. But hang on. So so go back to Chris. Answer the question. Do what? What do I think about the placebo do you think effect? It would, no. Do you think it would? It would. Jen's question. Do you think it would lead to biologic changes? Hmm. In if we had some biologic marker of depression. That's a. I think that's a trickier one. Um, it, it, I think it's a trickier one because. The self-reports, the, 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 the experience of the symptoms could well have a reciprocal effect on the biology of the process behind it. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think it, with, with mental health, this is a, this, the, the, bio, the, the mental health biomarker, I'm, I'm just trying to wrap my head around what that would mean and what you would be measuring. Um, you know, I think there are um, other disease states where it would be probably a little bit easier. And I'm, I'm thinking 
this study uh, of albuterol versus sham albuterol for people with asthma, and then they, you know, they were wheezing, and they measured their their you know their forced flow rates and showed that there was obstructive, uh, you know, obstruction of their airways. They then gave them albuterol, or they gave them sham albuterol, and they measured their symptoms afterwards, and both groups improved to almost the same degree in terms of how they felt. But when they also looked at the FEV1s, which is the measure of airflow, only the albuterol actually improved the airflow. Yeah, I think that's so, a great example. You know, there you go. So that was the placebo effect. They felt better, uh, they reported that- feeling better, but the biology didn't change. Behind I it. see what you're saying. So okay. I think okay. The, okay. So I think that placebo effect is dependent on the subjectivity of your own reporting. Absolutely. So I can say I'm in a lot of pain right now. You know, I take my placebo. I might say I'm in a little less pain, but objectively, that pain is actually, if it could be measured accurately, would be the exact same level. Looking at the concentration of prostaglandins in your knee or something exactly. like that. Exactly. It would be the same. Yes. And so one of the responses that I got on Twitter was were these articles that I sent around to you all, which there are these groups that are claiming to take advantage of the placebo effect. They're doing these trials where they claim to actually tell people, I am giving you a placebo. This will not do anything to you. You know, yep. this is it's a, a little bottle substance. labeled placebo. It's labeled placebo. And yet they claim to find effects in terms of what we would probably consider subjective outcomes. Do you buy these trials? Uh, <laughs> I think you know, we're referring to this paper in PLOS One, right? Um, that was the yes. the genesis for this this uh, lengthy um, yep. narrative yes. by Dr. I think Gorski. The outcome was mm-hmm. these were all patients affected by irritable bowel syndrome, yep. from what right. I remember. Yes. Exactly. Right. And they were told that they were going to get a, a placebo and it was going to be labeled a placebo and the placebo did nothing, but it might activate their mind-body axis in some way to make them feel better. But there was a very controversial part of that, and that's that the investigators told the participants all about how effective placebos right. can be and Therefore, how helpful they can be and that this it was like it was this real scientific thing that yeah. we understood and they just had to harness it. But what they did is they sold the placebo. Yeah. Wait, sold as in <laughs> like this placebo as opposed to that placebo is going to be great for you. <laughs> we have we have science to be fabulous. It's going to be the magnificent. Right for you. It's going to be the best the placebo. placebo. The best placebo yeah. ever. It will be stupendous. Yeah, right. They 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 told people what it is that they this placebo was going to do to them. Take this placebo to Helsinki. It will be the best placebo. Helsinki? You lost me there. That was a man. reference to the Helsinki summit. But talking I don't... about the the national economy and our yeah. <laughs> anyway. Get, uh, getting back to health. Uh, okay. So is so so. Are you saying that you? Have more skepticism about the placebo effect now, less skepticism? Where are you? I, I think Gorski makes a really good point, as Jennifer said. That, Gorski? That, uh, you know, they, they Gorski say is? Gorski is the, is the, um, the highly critical uh, professor at Harvard who wrote a long blog attacking this paper in placebos plus without deception, a randomized control trial in irritable bowel syndrome. And who was the authors on that? We should probably I mention. I don't have that one. It's in there somewhere. Anyway, um, he, he, you know, he basically said that, like, you know, placebo without deception, that claim was immediately refuted, as Jennifer is saying, because they, they then went and actively sold the placebo, saying, this is placebo, it will do nothing, this is just sugar pills, it will do nothing, There's no, it's totally inert, this will do nothing. But this is going to make you feel 
better. Is Way it, better. Do you That's remember? Do you, guys, do you guys remember the Steve Martin? Yeah, it, placebo. It, placebo. I am taking this great new drug. It's called placebo. Right. So good. You should look it up. Okay. It's up there with this tuna fish sandwich thing. Uh, I don't know. The Jerk is one of the greatest movies ever made. I did enjoy that film. Although I say that, I haven't seen it. In many years, and many of the movies I've been watching recently of old movies that I've watched don't hold up. They disappoint. So, yeah. And they turn out to be horribly sexist and, and offensive, so maybe I'm wrong. All right, so any last thoughts on placebos? Well, I think they placebos are the friend of the clinician and the enemy of the clinical trialist. Is it? Let's say if placebos worked, there was a placebo effect, would it be ethical to use them? Yes, because we do it all the time. Meaning what we use? I mean, clinical medicine, where like a lot of the stuff we do is just placebos. You know, we wrap people, we put those little, you know, stretchy bands, things in pink Wait, and green. Wait, that doesn't do anything? No. No, it's just... It totally does. It's just, it, it only works if it's pink. Have you but, all seen the study of the uh, the effect of, of mommy kisses? Well, that's, I was just going to exactly. ask about that. And yeah. it's, well, you know, you know. Mommy kisses are effective. Yeah. They do. I mean, a lot of things we do in medicine are placebos. We don't even necessarily well, know them. We may have perfect parent. faith in them. Uh, uh, you know, one of the one of the big concerns I've heard voiced in um, medical circles uh, is this this fear that evidence based m- medicine is systematically chipping it away at all our placebos and therefore rendering <laughs> us weak clinicians more impotent. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, as everyone, another thing is shown not to really work. You're like, you okay, lose, you get another one of your could, come in, like, patient comes in very miserable and say, well, truth is we've got nothing. Everything we've got doesn't work. Sorry. I mean, you can't, you can't say that. What you want to say is like, oh, your viral respiratory infection that's making your sinuses hurt so much. Here is some azithromycin, a Z-pack. You'll feel better in a week, which is true. You will. But, but not, not because, because of the right. azithromycin. Exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm going to, I'm just going to end this then by saying I have more skepticism than I had before. That I, I, I do think there is a big component of the placebo, or what we are calling the placebo effect, or have been calling the placebo effect, that is really just regression of the mean. And uh, it does make me rethink whether or not we could really harness it uh, if it's not really a real thing. So I'll just leave it at that. And we can move on to our third segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do, and we do really enjoy our jobs. This is a look at the weird and wacky things that happen in our field. Although I guess I don't have to say that since Don isn't here and it could just be what it really is, the amazing and amusing things in our field. Uh, Are you going to talk about the digestive system in any way, Jennifer? <laughs> I hadn't planned to, no. Okay, then I will. Okay, then Chris is going to go first. <laughs> he is very eager. As always, take it away, Chris. <laughs> no, no, hold on. All right, tell so, us about the digestive system. So this is because Don is not here, and I and I figured someone needs to to fill the void. To, so so <laughs> I I worry about the term so, fill the void. Um. So th- th- this this is a um a story about a common problem we see in intensive care units, which is C. difficile. Uh, Colitis, which we talked, talked about. about on the on the right. box. So C. difficile is a bacteria that is it's an anaerobic bacteria. It forms spores, and the spores are like disseminated into the environment out of people's backsides, and they get everywhere. And they are incredibly hardy. They cannot be destroyed by UV radiation. They're resistant to alcohol, so like alcohol hand washes do not work. Washing them off with soap and water is really pretty ineffective. Then the only thing you can do to kill them is using concentrated bleach. And so they spread like wildfire in intensive care units and cause very very severe severe uh, colitis, Very severe. Um, which is difficult to treat and is occasionally fatal. So it is a, it is a, it is a real problem. Now, 
as C. difficile became more common, this, um, um, I think, urban legend emerged in ICU nurses that they stated that they have the ability to smell C. difficile and tell that this patient's stool smells like C. difficile versus that patient's stool who does not have C. difficile. This device. is something you've actually experienced? I've heard As a doctor? so many nurses make this claim, actually. That um, you can That you can smell. tell. I can tell. That patient smells like C. diff. And you're like, oh, right. I can't, I can't tell. But I wouldn't doubt it because this patient's got fever and a high white count and wicked diarrhea uh, after taking a course of antibiotics for their ventilator pneumonia. So I would have guessed it was C. diff, too. But in terms of being able to smell it, I can't tell. So, this makes me glad I'm not a clinician. Right. I mean, it's Did very... Did somebody do a study to find out? Many studies, as it turns out. To so smell... There, there were a whole flurry of, of projects Ew. in the early 2000s where they basically assessed nurses' ability to, to like identify patients with C. diff based on the smell of their stools. Gross. Yes. But the pro- and, and, and in all of those, in all of those trials, the nurses BO. were very accurate <laughs> at identifying C. difficile colitis. They were not? They, they, were, they were highly accurate. But well, the, problem was, the problem was that in all cases, they were, they were not blinded to the clinical information about that patient. So oh. there was huge mm. bias. Yeah. Like, you know, here's a patient who's got wicked diarrhea and a fever and a high white count after taking antibiotics for the ventilator and pneumonia. Smell this. And I think they've got C. diff, <laughs> right? I mean, so it, 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 the experiments were really, were really questionable. So finally, they got around to doing a, a truly blinded experiment where they, um, they assembled stool samples from nine patients with diarrhea not due to C. diff and one patient with C. diff. And they had the nurses basically sniff them blinded to all clinical information of that about what was the cause of their they, diarrhea? They consented and them the, for and, this, right? Yes, and that and said, the nurses will be sniffing their samples. their success rates were no better than a coin flip. So so when blinded, the nurses could not do this. So it that seems to like to destroy me. this urban myth. And we're like, okay, well that makes sense because like really, what could you be smelling? But the thing is that <laughs> C. difficile apparently does release a a, a, a a cloud of characteristic volatile organic compounds that in theory could be detected if you had like a mass spectrometer so they could say oh yes that is that is CDF right there but see those spikes <laughs> so but you know are nurses able to have like you know their nose calibrated to be like a mass spectrometer Apparently not, according to this more recent not, study. Not, not a very big sample, but... But it, what about oh boy. other animals that oh. do have better senses of smell? So dogs! They, so they got dogs. So they brought in a beagle dog into the ICU, <laughs> and they trained the beagle dog with rewards and treats on how to identify C. diff. And no way. this beagle dog was... Awesome. You're kidding. Seat. Absolutely nailed it. Every like 100% sensitive. I'm not at all surprised. Always got it right. This is the same beagle that sniffs me in the airport and always finds <laughs> the ham sandwich that I forgot in my bag. Same you guy. Mean after he retired from the TSA, <laughs> <laughs> went into research. No way. <laughs> so he was really good. Yeah. So the dogs really can do it. So you know, is uh, is there a, a subset of nurses who have like highly refined olfactory senses who might be able to actually do this? I don't know. It's like can it we makes assume me the dogs are blinded? The blind. The dogs were. Blinded to the clinical status of the patients. We're sure. How would how 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 <laughs> what? Beagle dogs are. Very, like I would they, say, if you're worried a, that they're telling the dog this one has. If well, it was a German they could shepherd, be subtle cues. Well, exactly. Did did the patients look ill in other ways that the dog picked up on? Oh, well, I think, oh yeah, hmm. that's a good question. I don't. Were they smelling the patient or they were smelling the stool? Uh, let me see. <laughs> really matters. The beagle dogs. Here we go. The beagle dogs. Uh, the. I, 
I gotta pull up the abstract here. It is. Yeah, you you gotta do some serious. Oh, they don't have an blinding. abstract. This is this is um. They're very bright. Uh, they the are very okay, bright. Here we go. The, the, the dog was guided along the wards by the trainer who was blinded to the participant's infection status. Each detection round con- concerned 10 patients, one case, and nine controls. The dog was trained to sit or lie down whenever it smelled C. diff. And the sensitivity and the specificity for detection of C. diff was really good. Sensitivity 83%. Sorry, not 90. And uh, specificity was 98%. Okay. I just have to point out. This is the best figure one I've ever seen in a paper. <laughs> it is a picture, a, a photograph of the beagle in his cute little vest. I love it. At, at the, the hospital. hospital. So cute. Sitting on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Snoopy dogs. Now, All right. Maybe if you did this with, with German Shepherds, it would be a different result. Maybe. That's important. All right. Well, that's well that a- leads right in. All right. Take it away, Jen. So, um... So now I know that you have a dog, Chris. Matt, do you have a dog? I do, Jojo. Jojo. Okay, so I have uh, Wednesday in trouble at home. Wednesday named after? Uh, So we adopted them. She was uh, Wednesday. They were Wednesday and Pugsley from the Adams family. From the Adams family. But Pugsley didn't really look like a Pugsley to us, so he became trouble, which he does look like. Whereas Wednesday looked like a Wednesday? Definitely. Is is trouble a pug? Neither of them. They are... Mutts, terrier mixes. They tell us we don't we don't really know. Okay, um, but they are lovely dogs, but uh, not particularly bright like this beagle. Mm. I hope they're not listening. Beagle, um, beagle dogs are known do, to be rather. Do your dogs dumb. listen to this podcast? They they do. Oh. They do. Yeah, they're forced to. But um, <laughs> but I found this uh, paper. I actually I have to credit uh, Eric Topol's. Uh, tweet mm-hmm. for, for identifying mm-hmm. this one. Um, but this paper was actually uh, looking at dogs' empathy and their pro-social helping behavior. And so, you know, okay. I've often wondered, dogs I mean, are... my dogs are, you know, pretty nice to me, but would they actually try to save me in some situation of, of oh, distress? Who cool. would they? Uh, I'm actually, I'm much more optimistic after, after reading these papers. So they didn't, they didn't seem to look at measures of intelligence in, in the dogs, but, um, they looked at 34 different dogs. About half of them were, um, officially therapy dogs and the others were just regular old domestic pets. Uh, and they had a number of tests that they performed with them, uh, with their owners, so they randomized the dogs to either a control condition or a distress condition. In the control condition, the uh, owner was seated in this little room. It was made out of plexiglass, it seems, so the dog and the owner could see each other. But the, um, the only way the dog could get to the owner was by opening a door that was attached by mm-hmm. magnets. Uh, in the control condition, the owner... Uh, said help in a very non-emotional way. Help. And then, yes, and then every so many seconds, and then in between that sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Yeah, okay, makes sense. And then in the distress condition, the owner uh, said help in a more... Help. Thank you. And then in between the help calls, uh, cried. Mm. Now, did we need this study? Because... can't we just watch Lassie? We know what what. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. If you're in, a, into the end of one, Lassie's, that would Lassie's be Lassie's documentary, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. No. Um, so the the really interesting thing is that regardless of the control condition or the distress condition, most dogs actually went and opened the door to get to their 
owner. Mm -hmm. So I think that's encouraging. But there was um, a suggestion that the distress condition was associated with faster opening of, mm. of the door. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then they also did this experiment. It was called the impossible task where the dog was trying to get food out of a jar that was actually screwed shut. Mm. Um, and they were measuring sort of the distress of the dog and uh, through its heartbeat and the amount of time that the dog spent gazing with either the owner or or the the stranger. Mm -hmm. um, and they found that um, dogs spent more time, of course, of course, gazing at the owner than the stranger, um, but even more time actually trying to do these tasks. Mm. So I have more hope in my dog's ability to save me in an emergency. Given now, that. that doesn't actually get to the dog's actual ability. It's just their willingness. Their willingness. Yeah. They, would they would try. They would try. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, you know, and that's, that's all we can that's really all ask. We can ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Chris, your dogs would they save you? No, dog, no. Good. My my dog, dog Pepper is not bright. Pepper, it's not uh -oh. bright. She will she growls. Whoever comes to the door, and then you know if it's the stranger or if it's my wife, she will then lick their hand. Doesn't matter. Ours, ours is the uh, he will. If you were to break into our house, he would definitely show you where the valuables are. Yeah. Yep. Be yeah. Right happily. Away. Please follow yep. me. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's, um, I suppose that gives me hope, though. A little bit of hope for, for JoJo. All right. Um, so mine's a, mine's a real short one, and it hits on a, a theme that I have hit once before, which is what do you do when you feel like multiple people have contributed equally to uh, a publication, and you've got to decide who's the first author, or let's say in this case where there are only two authors, who's the first and who's the last. Do you all have opinions on shared First authorship? I've never done that. I don't like it. I don't I don't think I believe in it. Mainly I don't believe in it because it's one of those things where one person is listed first and one is listed second, and then there's a note that says these are both co-first authors, but whoever sees that, and so I, you know, it just strikes me as silly. Anyway. I'm I am a very frequent co and okay. co-first and co-last author. And, and it works for you? Well, I mean, of course, you know, would I rather be the sole first author? Well, sure. But, but, if, if, but, but if you're list, oh, sorry, go ahead. But I think there are a number of situations working in larger teams where there's only one first and one last spot. And sometimes it's just not fair to give that to to one person. So especially with the last position, I think that role can be really leading up, you know, overseeing the the paper or, you know, if you're working on a large ongoing study, it might be the person who has maybe wasn't in the senior role on that particular paper, but yep. in the larger project has had some some major role. And do you believe that they are truly co-equal first authors? Or is the one who's listed first equal seen in the as... Of, equal in the eyes of public. Seen as yeah. externally as the real first author. Well, it's interesting. So one thing that I was told, and this is something that I do, and now I'm outing myself and I may get in trouble, uh -oh. but, uh, but on my CV... We, for, can, we for, can edit these things out. For... Uh, publications where I'm co-first but might be listed second, I actually list that first on my CV. Wow, what a good idea. Mm. Okay. All right. I like that. I don't know if it's... Uh... And you include, and now, you know, people would say, well, what if they tried to look that up and they'd look it up by a different... But you include the link to the paper. So it's it can still be I like found. it. I like it. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm for mine, I have uh, a solution that was used for this particular problem. 
These were two authors. This came from the Twitterverse. Uh, arm wrestling? Tripped me off to this. No, no arm wrestling on this one. Uh, so this was uh, A.M. Scheel and P.M. Issiger. I know A.M. Scheel is Anne Scheel. I don't know. Uh, I think it's Peter uh, Issiger, although I may be wrong. So this is what it says in their acknowledgments section or in their disclosure section. It says, uh, A.M. Scheel and P.M. Issiger contributed equally to the manuscript, and the order of their authorship was determined by executing the following commands in R. They then list three commands that is a random number generator that then spits out a name of the first author and prints the winner is X, and that is how they determined who got to be the first author, which I thought was, you know, clever. It's a random number generator, but it also, you get to put a little bit of R code in your acknowledgement section. I think that was so... Yeah, that's very, very, cool. very nerdy in very a great cool. way. Very nerdy. Yeah. Yeah, like absolutely. So that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest or a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at at Prof Matt Fox, or Chris at at ID.Gill, or Janet at Jennifer R. Rider, don't forget the extra R. Or you can find us on Population Health Exchange's website, which is www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talali and Director of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>